0: Welcome to Drinking with Visionaries, a podcast where we have nightcaps with daydreamers. My name is Trace Brady and I will be your host. For this next episode, we'll be joined by Rosie Sherry. Rosie is the founder of Ministry of Testing and currently acts as community lead at Orbit.love. And so without further ado, I present Drinking with Visionaries, episode four. Rosie, what's on your mind these days?
1: Oh, well, the obvious, obvious answer is community. That's a very like overarching generic answer that you know everything I do at the moment is intentionally focused in on community building. So yeah, I left Indie Hackers recently, and as part of that, is that when I left, I kind of said to myself that anything I do has to be heading towards more community stuff. Perhaps more, you know, I guess being a bit more meta about it, like going deeper into, I guess teaching community research and community all of that so rosyland is kind of part of that which is a newsletter turning into a community at the moment slowly i can't quite do it all at once i don't have the headspace at the moment but um slowly turning that into a community and we're doing a cohort course at the moment actually so that starts this week which is why i've been running around a bit like a headless chicken and, yeah, and then I start a new job next week as well.
0: So what will so. you be doing there?
1: I'm a the community lead um, for Orbit.love. It's basically like a community tool. I'm not very good at explaining it at the moment. I, I need to, like, get in there. But, you know, it kind of pull, pulls in data from various sources related to people in your community. Um, and it looks really interesting, actually. I've started using it for my own little communities that I have as well, just to start getting the feel for it. But basically like these days you you have your community in so many different places. So like they're on Twitter, they're on Slack, they're on Discord. And the idea is that it pulls in information and activities from all the locations to help get a better picture of who your community are and help you take better action, I guess. But you know, I've not started there, so I've, I've not, I've not been, taught all the words to use yet.
0: <laughs> well, it sounds easy enough to understand. So you're at least heading in the right direction.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I, I never thought I would actually end up working for, I guess, a tool vendor and um, mm. especially like a, a VC backed one. It wasn't really like what, what I was after. So like, yeah, my background's very much bootstrapped indie hacker kind of thing. I actually handed in my notice. At Indie Hackers, without any intention to like take a new role, but it all kind of just happened at the same time. But yeah, I mean, the team seems really nice, and the tool seems interesting enough for me to kind of take on the role. Yeah, and they're keen on like community education as well, and that's kind of, to be honest, one of the biggest pulls for me is that I want to teach and even learn more about communities. I feel like I still have so much to learn.
0: What started this journey for you?
1: I can trace communities back to, like, 2006. It was when I first started a community. You know, I'm, like, so introverted, and I decided to start a meetup. I thought, oh, you know, that seems interesting. That's a good idea. And as an introvert, that's also interesting, because I basically, like, ended up taking the strategy of doing everything I could to organize things, but not be at the front of the room. And I just did that, I guess, naturally. And I kind of discovered that I liked bringing people together, but I didn't necessarily want to be that face at the front of the room. I didn't want to be that kind of expert. I was more interested in just kind of meeting people. Um, Yeah, and that was what 2006. So I was like 25-ish, 26 ish then 27 maybe. I guess a big step for me because I'd never done anything like that before and when I did that that was a Go Geek dinner meetup. And I, I ran that meetup for like two years and for the two years that it ran it was mostly like fully booked like, like people just like as soon as I announced it to like a local list it would just get booked almost like within 24 hours and that was pretty like amazing for me and that kind of gave me that kind of exposure, kind of being, I guess, famous in the context of my Brighton hometown in the UK. And then after that, I I did a co-working space. I partnered up with a couple of other people to do that. And that was fun, stressful at times, but I met like friends for life there and I just had such a good time pulling people together. And again, it was never about me, it was always about trying to find people, trying to find reasons to gather, trying to entice people in and do things that kind of mattered for them. But yeah, those were like my first two communities. And it was all around that time, I started started reading like Seth Godin and he was like the one that kind of opened my eyes to community stuff and also marketing. I'm quite into marketing as well. Is there a Um, specific
0: book of Seth Godin's that made you delve deeper?
1: I don't know. I can't remember all of them. I mean, I I basically read all these books within like a year or something. I I think it was like permission marketing was one of the first books I read, which was kind of novel at the time. You know, I I still like dip into his blog. These days, just like reading his stuff and he just comes across as really genuine. He doesn't apply like hacky marketing tricks. You know, he, he tries to build useful things.
0: Is there a particular lesson that you learned from him that changed your entire point of view?
1: I think it was more just like, he just talked common sense, right? And I always think of him like as someone that, actually, he, he doesn't have much to say. Like, everything he says is just like, common sense. And I think that's really, like, what's stuck with me the whole time. Like, yes, I have learned a lot from him, but maybe I haven't learned that much because everything that he's taught me is like stuff that I kind of believed was the right thing to do anyways. Like, I, I, I dislike a lot of business practices, a lot of marketing practices, and I just like refuse to do stuff. And that's kind of
0: Got any um, specifics?
1: Oh, you know, just silly things like, you know, this like obsessive thing about growth, like growing your email list, for example, pop-ups, hacky tricks to just like grow your email list for the sake of it. And, you know, I just never, never do any of those kind of things. I prefer to just build things slowly and let people know sometimes that they can do things, but not, not be, not be pushy in any kind of way. I actually have mixed feelings about newsletters these days, for example, I think there's just way too many newsletters these days filling up people's inboxes. And to me, it, it just feels like a bit of a problem. And I think that's probably what stops me from like promoting my, my things as much. I only want people to sign up if they're really interested. And I guess if they're really interested, they'll go through the effort of trying to find out who I am and what I'm doing and then sign up. So like, yeah, I don't, I don't pay attention to numbers on my newsletter or anything like that. I just like focus in on trying to create value, trying to create something that I'm happy with and kind of trusting that, that in time, things will kind of work out.
0: And when you say you don't really pay attention to numbers, I completely get that for the subscriber rate or how many people are, are signing up in a given month but yeah. do you pay attention to any other numbers like open rate and try to optimize those or are you just kind of relying on intuition?
1: No, yeah, I just don't care. <laughs> I'd rather just like focused on putting something out that I'm happy with. And I, I've grown email lists to like 30, 40,000 subscribers with that mindset. And that was with like ministry of testing. So I had ways of like getting people to opt in. So like if they attended an event I would give people the option to opt into emails and stuff like that. But yeah, to some extent, yes, it matters if, if you want to grow a business, but I think at the same time you can grow a business without obsessing over that stuff. And I think actually it's like a lot of wasted time and a lot of wasted effort. But if you think of all, all the resources people end up spending on trying to optimize stuff, I just don't enjoy that work. And I'd rather spend my energy doing something completely different. Yeah.
0: Well, I know if I were just starting out and for anybody who's listening to this, who's just starting out, that's probably a really comforting thing to hear because I, for years, obsessed about those types of things. And I had this idea of what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to pay attention to all these numbers. I was supposed to go fast and break things. And these things obviously play a part, but if you rely too heavily on them, you become dogmatic in your thinking. And uh, you don't trust that intuition that you have honed this entire time. So, yeah, I just think that that's a really refreshing point of view to hear because I'm of a similar mind now, but it took me a long time to unlearn all of those things and not pay attention to them so much. So, I'm just happy to hear you say that.
1: Yeah. And I, I think like these kind of things kind of cross over in all aspects of life. So, we're talking now like, from a newsletter growth perspective. But the same applies to business. The same applies to managing people and HR. And, and then you can also apply this to kids and schools. In these days, like schools are so obsessed with like tracking everything. I think this philosophy for me is just something that I just apply to like everything in my life. I don't want to spend my time doing these things. It doesn't really impact things that much. We unschool our kids, for example. I don't want my kids to be, <laughs> to be monitored and tracked like every single aspect in their life. Um, the world to me is so wasteful and so bad for you in so many ways. And people don't realize it until they step away from the system.
0: So when you speak about unschooling, what does that look like for you guys? If you don't mind me asking.
1: Yeah, I don't mind. It looks like uh, t- taking one day at a time, basically. For years, I've kind of had that, that approach, just that trying to plan ahead or trying to make plans, just like never seems to work with kids, or at least like the way we want to approach things. But mostly like day by day or week by week, it's a case of, right, let's see what the kids are into and what can we encourage them to sign up to and see if they say yes. <laughs> And basically, we encourage them to read and do stuff. But apart from that, we don't do any kind of curriculum. And, and there's kind of no point, in my opinion, to like force a kid to learn something that they're not ready to learn. And I believe every kid is different. So my eldest is 17, and he's self-taught him himself everything, you know, he's he's done YouTube and he's done programming. He's done graphic design. He's teaching himself maths at the moment, he's decided that he wants to do maths. So like if that had come from me, he would have rejected it. And of course, as a parent, what we'll do is try to find things that they might be interested in, and encourage him and like, come up with ideas based on things that we know about. So like my 17 year old, he, he does a lot of strength training. So As an example, we're looking into maybe like getting him a coach to help him. He's been doing it all by himself for the past couple of years. And that's what he wanted. He didn't, he didn't want help. He just wanted to do it by himself. So we, we, we got him the equipment, but like he's really into it now and he's done so much research. I go to him for advice. I started doing strength training because of him, you know, so I think that's like really interesting. It's like, we always think that kids should like, copy the parents, but actually, I think parents can take after their kids and get, you know, develop good habits from their kids as well. So, yeah, I mean, most of it is just encouraging. And I think also, like, trying to let go of what we think we're supposed to, how we're supposed to raise kids. I think, like, because, like, my eldest is 17, there's almost 20 year parenting timeframe. Where parenting has actually changed quite a lot in those 20 years, but I feel like now these days there's a a lot more advice out there, and it's easier to find. I, sorry.
0: Sorry, I interrupted you. Um,
1: No, that's all right. Go on.
0: I was just going to ask if there's any popular advice out there for parenting that you absolutely disagree with.
1: That parents should control their kids. I guess. Or oh, I guess like more specifically that grown-ups don't treat kids like human beings, and that sounds like really, really bad to say. Right? I, I say that, and I feel, oh my God, that's like, like.
0: But it's true.
1: It's it's true. People shout at their kids. They put them on time out. They let them like cry their eyes out. They force them to go to school if they, you know, even if they're crying. But if you were to like put yourself in their shoes, you would not do that to an adult. I always ask myself, is that how I want to be treated? Like the way I talk to my kids is that I actually talk to them very kind of <laughs> seriously. I don't like put on a kiddie voice or anything like that. I'm just like day to day, I'm just like quite serious about stuff. And maybe that's, you know, just the way I am, but I don't lie to them. I'm always like hundred percent the truth. And that's another big thing, actually, is that like, adults lie to their kids all the time. Um, and I think that's a huge problem. Because kids find out and then they lose trust in their parents and the parents don't even realize it. So like my kids, especially my younger ones, they, they come to me asking me questions and they know that they're going to get the truth. Even if they don't like it, I'll just tell them Santa doesn't exist.
0: Has it gotten you in trouble with other parents?
1: No, I, I tell my kids, I was like, we, we know that Santa doesn't exist, but other kids believe that, that he exists. So you should probably not tell them but it's up to you. So it hasn't caused us any trouble yet.
0: (laughs) I like that approach though. I mean, I've always treated kids like they were my equals and that's gotten me in trouble a couple of times because, you know, for instance, I was substitute teaching for a while, like after college and before like my first real job, I didn't know what I really wanted to get into. So I started substitute teaching because I, I knew I was excited about education. And I was teaching anywhere from, from first grade all the way up to like seniors in high school. And no matter the age, I would just treat them like they were a full-grown adult. You know, I wouldn't share anything that would traumatize them, obviously, but but I would ask them hard questions and, and treat them as if they have the intellectual capacity to address such questions because they do. And a couple of times, and I think I've already mentioned this on one of the other episodes, but uh, a couple of times... The students came up to me after class and said, I learned more from you in one day than I learned from my teacher this entire week or this entire month. And I'm like, that is so cool, but very problematic. Like that should never happen. And I wasn't doing anything super special. I always opened the class with a thoughtful question. And then for the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes of class, we would delve into it. And sometimes that would go down paths about death or depression or you know things that are like a little bit darker at least for for what is typically deemed an appropriate age to talk about and yeah they loved it they were very attentive you know I never had to control the class because I had their attention from the get-go after a couple of weeks of doing this I almost got fired from that job because the teacher that I was subbing for found out what I did which was just talk to them like they were full grown adults and she didn't like that so much so she reported me and uh, they pulled me into the office and said if you do this again then uh, you won't have a job here anymore and I was like okay good to know and I just kept doing it. (laughs) (laughs) They never found out but I felt like it was important enough to keep going. Or, or more important than it was for me to keep that part-time job that I didn't really plan on on keeping for a long time. So like we had watched TED Talks, we had discussed philosophy, and by the end of it, they were just so appreciative because they were like, wow, we're not used to being talked to like that. And we didn't know it until just now because somebody showed us like this alternative. And I'm not trying to like brag or anything. It was just my own approach to to teaching. And to them, it was a surprise, because this was in a really small town in Indiana. Just to give you an idea, the population is 13,000 people. And it was very small-minded in the sense that if you tried anything out of the box, people would look at you weird and they'd call you names. And once I grew up and got out of that place and traveled the world for a little bit, I saw all these different perspectives and came back to that small town just for a little bit and realized like they need some, some taste of that. Otherwise they, they might get stuck here. And there's nothing wrong with living in a small town. I think there's something wrong with staying in that town forever and never like getting a chance to see those other perspectives. So yeah, I, I felt it was my, my solemn duty to, to share some of that with, with kids because I was thinking of them as younger versions of me and if I just had, you know, one or two teachers like that at that age, it would have changed my trajectory for the for the coming years. And I know that for a fact because I had some of those teachers and some of those mentors later on in life. And it was a very painful process to, to work with them because they would be pointing out errors in, in my way of thinking about things or or bring up like specific traumas that I had dealt with. or or hadn't dealt with yet you know so it was playing out in my my daily actions and i wasn't yet aware of it so like my mentors would come along and be like oh by the way this is because of that and uh you need to unlearn this process that leads to these outcomes otherwise you're going to have trouble moving forward and yeah so so i just felt like it was uh, i was doing them a favor by by treating them like eagles but it shouldn't be a favor it should just be the, the commonplace
1: yeah And i feel sad i i honestly like feel sad about it i feel like i guess it, like if we're talking about visionary stuff for me like unschooling is the future in my opinion but it's it's so far off because there's like no support for, for families to unschool obviously it varies between between countries and stuff. But like in the UK, we're quite lucky that there's not really many rules around it. So we're kind of able to mostly just do what we like. But yeah, I mean, I I imagine a future of like, co working spaces, but for kids, that that would be my ideal. And that's something I often think about. Sometimes I think about setting one up, but I don't think I'll ever have the time or energy to do it. But I think you know having a space for kids and not necessarily having a teacher there but just having an adult present to who knows the kids and can support them in yeah. things it's and like a community yeah uh, where everyone teaches each other things like in our family we have we we have this generic rule that the older kids teach the younger kids stuff and, and <laughs> we make maximum use of that as parents so like my nine-year-old is currently teaching my, my six-year-old Minecraft um, as an example. And my 15-year-old taught my nine-year-old Minecraft. So it's like, you know, these things get taught within the kids. And like, if I was to sit down and play Minecraft, I would just lose my mind. I just like, I don't have the patience for games. I, you know, I, I don't want to learn games yet. Some unschooling parents will do that. They'll sit down with their kids and learn gaming with them. And that's a valid approach. But for us, it's just like, <laughs> no, I'll delegate it to the kids and uh, let them teach each other. It's a skill that they're learning. They're, they're learning to communicate, they're learning to pass on information. So I think it's, you know, a, a very valid way of learning to be a good, a good person. And I guess alongside that, they build up stronger bonds as well within the family. And I think that's important, not that we're perfect in a, a, any sense, but I think we do we do okay on that on that front. But yeah, I th- I just think yeah. that's so important. The, the, like that, I guess, connection that, that, that support within the family and like when kids go to school, it's like, there's no time for any of that. It's not that the school is necessarily bad. It's just that school leaves not enough time for, for anything else.
0: Yeah, I, I agree that community is the right way to go in terms of education with this bi-directional learning and swapping of knowledge, but have you ever found yourself trying to, or, or like using community as a as a hammer and looking at everything as a nail, have you ever found a problem where you tried to apply community as the solution and found that it was not the right fit?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> For me personally, no, I mean, like, and it also depends what you define community as. But I, I do think it's a problem generally at the moment, especially like since COVID, it's like people are trying to apply community to everything. But I guess like with me, I'm not trying to apply it to everything. I'm just like trying to apply it to the things that I believe community will have an impact on. So like with COVID, I just think there's a lot of, a lot of companies just like you know, they see everyone doing community so that they want to do community but they, they don't really understand why they want to do community or whether the people that are gonna be part of the community actually want to have a community around that. So community is definitely not the answer for everything, but generally everything I do has community in it.
0: What would, yeah. you, what would you say to people who are thinking about getting into community and like what questions would you ask to filter out the, the people who don't actually want that but just think that that's something they should do.
1: Ask awesome. why.
0: <laughs> and and again like 6 times. The why?
1: Yeah. Why? 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 Yeah. I've been thinking about this because apparently I'm t- teaching a course on this at the moment, so I should know what I'm talking apparently.
0: about.
1: Apparently. <laughs> so I'm doing a course, so as part of the course I've been trying to think about like how to how to communicate stuff around how I've built community. I built this like model I've got a picture of it on my twitter profile actually on the header i call it cultivating communities but i think the core basic part of it is like instead of jumping into building a community you gotta like hold yourself back and like do do research and it, it kind of sounds obvious saying that but so many people that say i want a community and they start building it and they start thinking about the tools that they need and they start trying to pull people in and then it fails and they give up pretty quickly when when it doesn't gain traction whereas the way I try to think about it and the way I've actually done it for Ministry of Testing which was the company that I bootstrapped and founded and what I've been doing for Roseland as well is first you do your research first you validate your vision whether the, the area that you want to build community in is actually something that you want to spend time building community. So you kind of have to like be, be passionate about what you're doing. But you also have to spend the time researching and getting to know the landscape to, to not only find out about the landscape that, you, that you're going to operate in, but also, I think most importantly, is to validate for yourself whether this is something that you would enjoy spending the next five to 10 years doing and I, I don't think enough people like, consider that that angle. They like, come up with an idea and it come, it's like, exciting and it might align with the things they're doing, but they don't spend like six to 12 months kind of going a bit deeper and really asking themselves if there's room in this community to make an impact. So if I take like, uh, Roseland as an example, uh, a couple of years ago, I decided, I said to myself, All right, I want to do stuff around community building. I'd done community building for years, but I'd never really participated in the community building industry. So, you know, I wasn't really for, too for, I was familiar, familiar with some people, but not, not everybody. So I just made a commitment to myself to start a newsletter and start using that newsletter as the foundation to do research. So every week I would curate a newsletter and I would make sure like, I showed up every week to do that. But it wasn't the newsletter that was important. It was like the research that I had to do every week to produce that newsletter that helped me just research whole, the whole industry. And then like within three to six months, I knew of every community that was out there. I knew every blog that was out there. I was following relevant people on Twitter. I was having conversations with people within six months like you know I went from like not really being known to being known I guess and all of that was based on just like taking this proactive approach of of doing research and the research is not only to find out stuff but also for me to make a decision for myself is this something that I want to do am I happy spending all this time researching and going deeper and deeper into the world of community building so I'd ask that myself constantly so i did that curated newsletter which was just like a bunch of links every week i did that for about eight months and then i decided well the next step is to is to, is to write something and i had never like properly developed like a good write- writing habit and i tried for like two or three months to like publish articles and i just never never did it and i kind of got frustrated <laughs> got frustrated with myself i was like come on rosie you can do it but you know, like like COVID was happening, right? Everything was a bit it was a bit crazy, so I decided just one day to switch on pay, payments for my newsletter, and within that, I promised to write one article a week. And yeah, that was back in July, so practically every week, well, every week I've published something, and it's the first time that I've ever had a writing habit. But that was also just like a part of the process for me to. To develop that writing habit, it wasn't—it wasn't so much about making money, but I made money. I got—I got to like 110 subscribers. I was charging like 15 to 20 dollars a month, uh, which at the moment is probably more—more on, more on the expensive end for a newsletter. But again, I, I, I didn't care because for me, my focus was just on writing, and paid subscribers was just like a bonus. That newsletter, like personally for me, has just been great i've you know never written so much in my life i feel like i've got that writing habit now that i just have to write now and that was my goal so now like i'm trying to like think about what to do next how can i keep like st- stacking the bricks and making sure that i'm happy along the way and also like my job that i'm starting my boss is on the newsletter as well so you know it helped me get a job <laughs> so he's like there's multiple benefits with these kind of things
0: Yeah. What would you say to somebody who's trying to develop a writing habit but hasn't succeeded yet or is unsure about the value of starting a a writing habit?
1: I would say to just do it, but just do it on something that they think they will enjoy. Find something that has like, not just that they enjoy, but they can see like a long term view with it. Because I think with any writing habit, you have to have that long term view. So if you're going to write on something, you don't need to like, have all the things you're going to write about at the beginning. But you have to kind of believe that you'll be able to keep writing. I think people think that they run out of ideas to write. But I think if they if they develop this habit of like, just surrounding themselves with the right ecosystem, I guess and always like, be looking for ideas to write about, then there's probably never a shortage. And I also think that there's a lot of bad content out there. There's a lot of superficial content, a lot of mar- marketing content, a lot of content that isn't actually very helpful. I wish there was a way to like, <laughs> delete it from the internet. But I don't think it's too hard to stand out. And I think the more you kind of Forget about the rules and just kind of like write from your heart. I guess. the the more the more you'll stand out. I think I think we can get obsessed again with like trying to do all the things, it's like, you know, trying to create an SEO optimized bit of content. And to me, it's like having having to worry about all those like the, the hundred different things to make an article perfect is just like overwhelming. And for me, it's like, I. I just don't think about any of that. I just like write um, and I write imperfectly and I write with spelling mistakes quite often. But people seem to enjoy it.
0: <laughs> I mean, in part because of the imperfections. You know, I know personally I'm way too hard on myself when it comes to my writing because, I mean, there's there's several reasons. You know, I, wa- I want it to be as good as it can possibly be. <laughs> You know, I have OCD, so like if things don't hit right, like in my my brain, it really causes me like distress. I'm particularly dogmatic in my my use of patterns. So especially when it comes to threes, like the number three, if, if I'm trying to make a point and I think it can be made better by listing three things or making three points, I will do that every time because two feels like it's incomplete and one feels like it's not enough. So I'm extrapolating some of these things that I personally deal with and think that everybody is thinking the same thing. So, so if it's not 100% perfect, people are going to like short circuit the way that I do. And that's just not true because most people don't have that problem. So in just recently starting this podcast and and starting to get back on twitter i've tried to to the best of my ability let go of of some of these expectations especially of myself but also of other people because that's not fair it's it's really not fair for me to read a a post that you make for instance and dissect it like like it's supposed to be the mona lisa like that's just not it's just not true and it's it's also not what you're intending you know, if, if you're trying to develop this writing habit and the goal is to just hit publish, like you succeeded. So anybody like me coming along and like nitpicking the whole thing is just being an asshole. And, and it's not, in my case, intentional at all, nor would I ever, ever send a message to somebody be like, hey, I edited your writing and made it better here's how you can do it better in the future. Like that's so presumptuous and so mean. I would never think to do that. But yeah, I feel like overcoming that, that expectation that of, of myself and other people has made me uh, a better writer because part of like a central part of the writing is sharing it with other people. Because if you have all of this wisdom and all of this knowledge and you keep it to yourself, you're making a mistake because that's, selfish you're again like really doing these people a favor just by sharing what you know and yeah it's something that i've struggled with a lot in the past so i'm i'm always interested to hear people's thoughts on their own process if they also have really high expectations or if this whole idea is completely foreign to them so what are your thoughts
1: i think it's true it's just all true and as 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 you were saying that i was thinking about public speaking for years, I just refused to do any public speaking. I didn't want to do it at all. Partly it was because I was like doing Ministry of Testing, which was my previous company, and I, I just didn't feel like comfortable talking about testing in general. And the other part was just like that lack of confidence. Is like how how do how do I talk about something? How do I start it? How do I not come across like as an idiot? All, all of that, right? But like the past 18 months, I I love that everything's gone online because i 've discovered like I'm comfortable speaking behind a computer I'm not necessarily comfortable speaking up on stage I'm not sure if I ever will be but at the moment I've discovered that actually I do like speaking but on, on my terms at least at least, <laughs> at least for the moment but even when I do speak and even like if it's like a, a talk or a presentation I still like you know question myself like what am I gonna talk about am I gonna am I gonna am I gonna Forget things? Am I going to structure it properly? And I've read like so many things that how to do public speaking, how to structure talks, and all these things. And they just like the more I read, the more I didn't want to do public speaking. And the more public speaking I did, the more public speaking I wanted to do. So I kind of like, for me, like what's worked is just to like show up to things like this, to podcasts and talks. A lot of it is like free flow kind of stuff, which I I prefer, but like talks or slides, I just put a few slides together and have a rough idea in my head of what I'm going to talk about. And I just talk and mostly it's turned out all right. I don't have notes or anything. I just like I I talk (laughs) and, you know, maybe that's like, you know, a really bad way to do it. But like anyone who teaches you about public speaking, they'll tell you not to do that. You know, it's what it's what I'm doing and it's far from perfect but you know it works for me and I enjoy it and you know most of the talks that I do people at least get something out of it so you know I, I think there's this like whole this whole expectation that we have to be so perfect in in everything we do and I guess like the way I work or the way my brain works I just can't operate like that and I think I think that's probably like discovering myself was like discovering who I am And that's the process that I guess I'm I'm going through at the moment is like, I'm stepping out of my comfort zone, doing things like this, doing like a course, the course I'm doing, I'm like, so out out of my comfort zone at the moment. I still will be all right. (laughs) I'll do it my way, the rosy way.
0: You've mentioned a couple of different times how you go against the grain, you go against what common knowledge is or, or what's expected of you and you just do things the way that you do them in a genuine and authentic way. And I think the lesson here, this is focusing on your strengths instead of trying to fix your weaknesses. And I think you're a prime example of that because I'm inspired by you for that reason because I have a very specific way of doing things and I'm only good at those things if I'm doing them my way. And I don't mean this to sound egotistical in the slightest, it's just, if I try to do them somebody else's way, I, I fall into this, again, this dogmatic way of thinking because I'm like, okay, X equals Y, therefore Z. And it's like an equation. And then each time I, I receive that input, I plug it into the equation and then like, try to make it work and it doesn't. And I'm like, why is this not working? Because I didn't write that equation. And when I do, I, I find that like, oh, I was completely wrong that I'm terrible at this thing. I've been good at it all along. I just had to do it my way,
1: yeah, and all of this to me like ties back to like everything we've uh, Lisa. I've been saying about like unschooling and just like figuring out things for yourself, but it's, it's, it's the same it's the same with kids it's like I've been looking at my kids and I've been trying to help them do things their way, trying to understand them and trying to adapt to who they are. So like, if they really don't like something, I'm not going to force them to do it. I'm not going to make them suffer for years or months just because I believe they need this certain skill. And as you go on through that process, trying to do that for your kids, you end up thinking about that for yourself as an, an adult. I guess like another thing that we've learned as parents or that we're currently learning is that we, we've got like neurodiverse neuro kids. We've had one who's just like only be, recently been assessed it's taken us years to to get to that, but that's just like uh, totally opened up our minds about everything, and you start really just like looking at each each kid individually so we've got one who's been been diagnosed, but we think we've got three who are pretty similar now now that we recognize like all all the things that that you're supposed to look out for, but then as you go through that process, you, you look at yourself as as parents. So you start looking at yourself, it, am I neurodiverse as well? So me and my husband are like looking at each other and like, we're, you know, we look at traits of our kids and, you know, we, we, we see like, does it come from me or does it come from him or, you know, five years ago we weren't even thinking about these kind of things. And it's just it opened up my mind completely to, to, how to how to raise kids or how to raise our kids. And it's just like, not, it was not on my agenda. I, I, You know, it's like, you know, it's only recently we were like, oh, shit, we've, we've got we've to <laughs> de- deal with, with our wonderful kids. They're amazing kids. They really are. But they just, they just need adaptations. And I think unschooling for them is probably the best thing because, for example, they're very sensitive to, to noise, sensitive to light, stuff like that. And I just think, well, if they were in a a classroom environment, that would torture them. It's just made me realize that I I want to look at everyone as an individual. And that kind of goes back to the whole topic of, you know, trying to optimize things. It's like, you know, how, how can you optimize individuals when every individual is so different? And it just, you know, it doesn't sit with me well. And I guess that, you know, that also goes back to community building. It's like when I build community, I, I look at individuals. I don't look at aggregated data. I look at conversations that I have with people and people for who they are and how I can help individuals, not necessarily how I can help everyone. It's just like what one one person at a time. It's just like all of this is like just like so interconnected.
0: Have you ever heard of the... One of those like cheesy quotes that says what's good for the wolf is good for the pack
1: not that specific one but okay so teach me.
0: i've always been weary of, of things like that because they they give a piece of context not not the actual context so if you're shouting these these phrases and these pithy quotes from the rooftops and people are picking them up and spreading them all over twitter you know that's great because you know to spread these ideas is to to make people think but they can also be damaging in the sense that if you don't provide the context for them they can provide their own context and because each person is an individual and there's like a thousand different ways each thing can be interpreted you know it's kind of worthwhile to put in that effort to provide the context even though it might not be as you know, viral, so to speak. And and I think this type of quote is exactly what I'm talking about. If you say what's good for the, the wolf is good for the pack, you know, that's to some people going to read as being selfish is okay. But if you're thinking like as the leader of the pack and you're tending to each of your wolves, then ultimately like all those data points you know, quote unquote data points will add up to be good for the pack. So I I like that approach and just connected it to that quote because I think that illustrates what the quote is intended to mean, but not quite what it said. And yeah, if you provided that extra bit of context, people would be like, oh, okay. Like instead of looking at how do I improve the entire pack, you look at each individual and treat their ailments individually it will eventually add up to be a net positive, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, hopefully.
0: (laughs) This is why I I overthink everything that I put out into the world, because if I don't, (laughs) it comes out as like 10 different metaphors, all the same thing. (laughs) And people are like, what are you trying to say? I'm like, I don't know, but I'm figuring it out as I go.
1: (laughs) And that's the beauty. (laughs) Uh, I was gonna say something, but I forgot. Yeah, I don't know. You've lost me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: not sure if that's a if that's a yeah. good sign or a bad yeah. one. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I was I was thinking about growth and scale again. Going back to like, I guess what pe- what people these days often want, and it's like th- these kind of ideas of like focusing on the individual. People don't think it aligns with growth and scale. It's like how you know how can you scale things if you've focusing on people one by one Mm -hmm. Um, and I believe it's scalable through like human behavior it's just like impossible to track many of the things I think you can probably track some things but I, I often talk about like just like being kind and just like growing like ethically and focusing on individuals and I think that's entirely possible for people or businesses to grow like that I certainly built ministry of testing with that ethos. It's not a unicorn, but you know, it's a good business. It's still, you know, going today without me. But I bootstrap that basically to like seven figures. And I still own it, but I don't run it. And you know, I, I did that all with the mindset of focusing on individuals. And of course, I wanted to grow and I was trying to grow, but it was growing one by one. Again, if we go back to like visionary stuff, it's like, I want to show people that that's possible. I want to show more examples of that, like growing businesses ethically or well, without as much stress, with being able to focus on things that we actually enjoy doing. That's always at the back of my mind at the moment, that like, how, how, how can I do that? How can I help others do that? And I guess like, how can I do that through communities as well, or how can I help other people build communities like that? It's all interconnected, right? <laughs>
0: Speaking of the interconnectedness and it all being, you know, one and the same, you know, that made me think of the Eastern philosophy of, of put the, the community above the individual and the Western philosophy being the exact opposite. But speaking of interconnectedness, are these not ultimately like saying the same thing? Like they're just approaching the problem in a different way?
1: Mm, possibly.
0: I mean, okay. I, I started writing a book a, a while back and never finished it, called "On the One Hand, But on the Other," because <laughs> because all of all of life's core truths seem to me to be two sides of the same coin.
1: Yeah, you know, what I love doing. I love um, taking some of these common quotes or sayings and flipping them, and I try to tweet tweet them when I can, not not as often as I should, but like it's, it's the, same, the same kind of idea but like there's all these like guru quotes that keep going around and it <laughs> piss me off a lot sometimes and, and like you say is that like, yes technically yes that quote is probably correct to some extent but there's a lot more to it than that so what I try to do is like present tweets that kind of tell the opposite side of the story which kind of goes <laughs> alongside what you're saying and also I guess for me it's I guess one reason why I don't like debates around these things, I just get lost in the, in like the whole discussion. And I'm not sure how, how productive talking about these things are or discussing these things. I'm sure it like, can be educational, but I guess like at the end of the day, I just like doing things. I'll just do stuff and, and not think too much about the philosophies behind them.
0: It's one of those things that's impossible to measure too. Just like you were saying with, with the individuals and and scaling it that way, like you can't possibly know the statistics about like how beneficial one debate, especially on a public platform is, you know, because there's no feedback after the fact saying like, okay, did this change your life perspective in any way? Like, it's just not gonna happen, nor do I think that should be a priority because ultimately these perspective shifts have to happen from a person who wants them to happen. Like if, if you come at me and say, there is no God. And I try to argue that there is one, like there's no shot in hell that I'm going to convince you to see my point of view. But if you're coming at the, the, the problem, not from the point of there is no God, but the question of, is there a God, then there's maybe some, some benefit to having that sure. conversation. But yeah, to have it publicly in front of yeah, I just I just don't even participate anymore because it it doesn't feel connected to a concrete thing. And actually that that brings up a question that I kind of had for you floating in the back of my mind in terms of my own community. I started this international book club just kind of on a whim, but I knew it was aligned with my values and my goals and The idea is to have no required reading whatsoever. So we all meet weekly via Zoom and then split up into breakout rooms where there's four or five people in each room. So it's a very focused conversation, but you don't have to read a certain book by a certain time because that turns your love of reading into homework and nobody wants that. So my point is I... I'm really good at the part of bringing people together and connecting them. And um, the problem I'm currently dealing with in community building is I struggle to show up every day in the sense that I don't want or enjoy being the person to keep everybody talking. Cause that to me feels too much like small talk. And I wanna deal with serious problems. And once that problem is solved, I just like check out. And that's not acceptable in terms of building a community because the community builder needs to show up every day or at least that's the the common knowledge advice. So my question is, do you have any advice for that in particular, or do I use it as a way to uh, find out what their problems are because then that would re-engage me? And I mean, I'm kind of answering my own question here, but. But if I could use that as an opportunity to ask questions and and dig deeper into their daily problems, that might help. But again, it's just really hard for me to to dig into that and do it consistently when I don't thoroughly enjoy it the same way that I do problem solving.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say do it because that seems like what you want to do, so you should just do it and see what happens. Um, If it's your gut instinct that you should be having deeper conversations, do it and figure out the other more superficial stuff as as you go along how necessary is all the other superficial stuff actually how much can you just get achieved by going deeper and I've actually I I have been thinking about this a lot where especially because like indie hackers that I was running it was quite quite a big community and in the end it's like what one of the things that I ended up struggling with is that it was too big for me to manage meaningfully. You know, I wasn't getting the opportunity to have these like deeper conversations with people, getting to know people. And I felt like everyone around me, even though it's obviously not true, but I felt like a lot of people around me were were having these opportunities to get to know people well, whereas I was stuck at this more higher level, superficial level the small talk, I think I just wanted more than that, not that that was like the specific reason I left, but it certainly played a part in it and and it's hard to, especially for something like indie hackers, it's hard to justify that you want to spend time with people getting Mm. to know them really well. How do you justify that as as a business cost? You know, I failed at that basically. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I'm all for deeper conversations. I think it's the way to go. I've done like bigger conferences for years. And right now all I want to do is small group stuff. I think this is what the world needs at the moment. I think it's a future to be honest.
0: Yeah. Is there a way in your mind to unify all of these smaller groups under one common ideal other than being human? Because we'll still need to operate and work together. Right, So I I agree that communities are the future and that we need to revert back to some of that, some of the good parts of tribalism because our, our brains are hardwired for like up to 150 connections within a tribe. And beyond that, it starts like breaking down because you can't effectively have that many relationships. So I see this call to action to revert back to, small communities and localism and self-reliance and all that. And I 100% agree with that. But the flip side of the the coin, just like my my question about Western versus Eastern philosophies is like, how do you also unify all of those communities around a common issue when it arises like COVID?
1: Yeah. I don't know.
0: I don't know. I don't know either. I'm just asking questions, hoping that you have the answers.
1: quick questions. I think a lot a lot of it is like having some kind of foundational network in place or I guess like when I think about the people that I want to develop a stronger relationship with it's like unschoolers for example I want more unschoolers in my life but I don't necessarily want every type of unschool in my life like particularly I'd love to have more tech unschoolers in my life if I could get tech and local tech people local unschoolers who are into tech and into business for me that's like the perfect balance but at the same time there's a lot of interesting people who are are into unschooling and into tech that aren't local to me so there's still value in that slightly different group but there's definitely unschoolers I, I don't necessarily want to hang around with yeah I guess it's like trying to find those those circles that overlap and being a bit more intentional about it. I'd love to think that maybe there can be ways that we don't rely on big tech. I think big tech has probably made us less able to properly connect more meaningfully. I hate that like groups are like owned by Facebook and like there's so many parents on Facebook and I just like avoid Facebook as much as possible. But by doing that, it means opting out of connecting with these people as well. I'm choosing to not participate in that. And sometimes that's hard because you think, well, maybe you're missing out, but maybe by doing that, you'll end up going somewhere else and finding other people who have that kind of similar mindset. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I think like trying to, trying to find those, I guess like if you tag people, find the, the tags that overlap.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have a similar aversion to Facebook And I can tell you a story about just how far out of my way I went to avoid Facebook and then ultimately caved and went back to Facebook. So I first started this free for all book club on Facebook, but like no, no, no groups, no, nothing like that. It was literally just me posting in similar groups and saying, this is what I'm trying to do, who wants in? And we grew to almost 300 members, you know, practically overnight, which was a problem in and of itself, because I'm like, (laughs) okay, how do I (laughs) manage this whole thing? Because all of a sudden people were like messaging me at at four or five in the morning because they're on the other side of the planet and it's the middle of the day for them. So, you know, I lost sleep for like two weeks straight because I like wanted to be there to answer their questions. And, uh, you know, did this for a little while and was operating like within Zoom and Discord, right? Those were the two platforms because the weekly meetings happened on Zoom and everything else to dive deeper and build those relationships happened on Discord. And this was great and worked really well, but I eventually ran into some problems that I knew could be solved by Facebook and and I hated it. I was like, oh my... God, you've got to be kidding me. Anyway, I I eventually got to a point where I'm like, okay, everybody that I met and has joined the group already, I met through Facebook. So that's where they're already at. And I guarantee you they're still using it. So me taking a moral stand against Facebook is actually hurting me and the group that I'm trying to build, which will ultimately have like a, a better result for the people involved so like it's a net positive for me to use Facebook regardless of like how much I disagree with their ethics
1: it's tough right and I think it's easy to shout to the world that you won't use Facebook or you won't use these platforms but the reality is that it's hard it's hard not to and like there's homemade groups locally and it's all on Facebook or WhatsApp now there was a whole discussion about WhatsApp recently about maybe shutting down the group on WhatsApp but they didn't do it just because they you know they're too attached to whatsapp now so it's just like really hard to to move this group but then I'm like struggling because I I really want to delete whatsapp and Facebook and I don't know what to do and like my boy goes to a forest school and they do all the communication over whatsapp so it's like I can't I can't actually delete it like, you know I can't expect the forest school teacher to text me separately or message me separately just because I don't want to use WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's unfair. But at the same time it's just like, I want to delete it or, oh, or, oh, and I don't know what to do. I admire the people who actually go ahead and just get rid of it, but uh, lots of them don't have kids and have my life. So you know, I think it's important to you know, I guess maybe not give yourself too much of a hard time if, if you do, if you do use it and
0: well, maybe there's a balance to it where we successfully achieve the uh, the smaller communities like we've been talking about, and the online communities kind of take a back seat to those in-person communities.
1: Yeah. so so when are you coming over?
0: Oh, I'm on my way, right? Now. <laughs> I've actually been to the u k three times now, and it is one of my favorite places in the world. So, don't offer that lightly, because I'll just show up one day and be like, "Hey, we're friends now, right?"
1: We are, we are friends. We're no longer a stranger on the internet.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, did you have any questions for me that now that we're like talking in person?
1: Oh no, I don't know. I, I don't know. What made you? What made you want to do these events or these calls?
0: Well, there are several answers to that it feeds into the the same reason like i was starting the book club you know i really wanted to meet more people that were you know on the same same wavelengths and same brain waves as me so we could develop that relationship around a topic that i really wanted to talk about with this this podcast specifically to to be a visionary to me says something about having imagination and having the the resourcefulness to make that that imagination come to life and it also implies a sense of wonder you're constantly amazed at what's happening around you because because you've made what's happened in your head come to life and that's just like a fucking miracle on its own (laughs) so yeah it was it was all like a selfish pursuit in the sense that i desperately wanted this for myself and I also thought there was some value there to offer other people because if I could successfully get in a room with Rosie Sherry for instance and pick her brain about you know all the things that I'm very specifically interested in other people might have those questions too.
1: Yeah and it kind of goes back to the, the, the ideas that I was talking about when you said when you asked like if if someone wanted to start writing what what would you recommend you do and it's the same thing as what you're, you're doing now is that you, you want to do you wanted to do a podcast and in the end you decided just to do something that feels right to you you say you know not not to organize just like more conversational based you know doing things in the moment and I like that I think you know I've been I've been thinking about doing a podcast for ages and I haven't done it yet I probably will at some point but when I do it, I'm probably going to take the same kind of approach. Like I, I don't want to be too prescriptive about things. And I just think it's super valuable just to like really want to speak to the people that you're going to speak to and like have like uh, r- real conversations and almost be like smiling all the way through. Right. Yeah, <laughs> which I feel like I have been. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of why I, I leaned more heavily on my my curiosity instead of preparing for these interviews because it just feels right because uh, anytime you're you're like putting on this mask and trying to fit into a persona that you think you should be at any given point in time like you're you're telling the truth but you're only telling like a very select part of the truth and by by just winging this, which is exactly what I'm doing right now. Like, I have no idea if this is going to be a good conversation or not, but I can bet based on, you know, what I know about you and your willingness to come on this, uh, show that's brand new. You don't know much about me. Like that says a lot about you as a person and says that we'll probably get along because I'm the type of person to just like wing it from the get go and hope for the best. Because, like, what's the worst case scenario? You, I don't know, don't like me and I don't air this episode? Like, what's yeah. the worst thing that could happen? You know, I make a, a social gaffe and I edit it out of the final cut before I publish it. There's no stakes here. Like, we're just, we're genuinely just playing. And I, I read the, a book on play not too long ago. Uh, you might enjoy it or know about it. It's by Stuart Brown. Does that ring any bells? No. Okay, so, so Stuart Brown uh, gave a TED Talk about play, and, and he's considered like an expert because he studied all of this, and, and one of the things that he learned, this is just an aside, not particularly useful to my point, but for instance, uh, he studied all, all of the serial killers and mass shooters of the last, you know, decade or so, and found that the one thing they all had in common was a childhood lacking play. Mm. Super fascinating. And I think you would enjoy at least looking up his Ted talk. But I think what I learned from the book finite and infinite games was that if, if you have to do something, it's, it ceases to be play. And that's like one of its core definitions. Like if you're, if you're setting out to do something and you think, oh, this will be fun and then it stops being fun and you still force yourself to do it. Like you're not playing anymore. You're, you're working or you're doing homework. And people, I think, can feel that if you if you try to push through that that discomfort. And and I'm not saying like as soon as you run into that discomfort, like abandon ship and, and never pick it up again. But if it feels wrong, if it if it feels foreign to you and it doesn't like resonate with some part of your your body or your soul or, or whatever, there's something wrong there. And yeah. and this to me, like Twitter as well, they're they're just ideas and that's what we're discussing here. We're just discussing ideas and there's no, most of the time, no right or wrong answer. It's completely dependent on the person and the place and the context. And that's the that's the stuff that I genuinely love to do as play. You know, yeah. I, I, I no part of this is work for me. I'm just having a good time. Yeah,
1: I so identify with that. And actually I can, I guess give an example like with, with myself. So, like, I, I left Ministry of Testing a couple of years ago. I was kind of burnt out. I was like, I'd lost interest in it. I was going to take some time off, but I didn't have to work, right? It's not that we, we're rich or anything, but the, the deal we had with Ministry of Testing is that I would keep getting paid because it's my company. And I would just like maintain my current salary and just not do any work basically. So I left, I was leaving based on that and the fact that we could just get by day to day without any real worries. But then I got the opportunity to do the community at Indie Hackers, and yes, it's work, it was a job, but I didn't have to do it, but you know, I had a choice to do it. And to me, it's like, I saw it as play. It's like, this is an opportunity for me to have fun, to learn something new. And I can leave it any time. It's just that 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 philosophy and that mindset that work for me has to feel like play these days. And again, it kind of just goes back to 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 who I am. That I just get down like really quickly if I'm not doing things that I actually enjoy, and it's just not not worth it for us yes. as as a family. So yeah, I think I think it's really important to like become financially strong so that you are in control just to make any decision you want that's so powerful and yeah we're not we're not millionaires by any extent but um being able to to quit is an amazing feeling because so many i know so many people can't do that and it's like suffocating it's you know almost like a death sentence i think sometimes
0: so i have one more question for you and then i'll let you go what is your grandest ambition
1: oh I think at the moment I want to kind of feel stupid, but I I want to transform the community world. I want to have like big impact there. I don't know how, but I want, I just, when people think Rosie Sherry anywhere, I guess I want them to think of community building, but not necessarily think of me as community building, but almost like make impact through other people, enabling them to build better communities it doesn't necessarily need to be attached to my name, but if I can like enable X amount of people to build communities that matter, I think that, that for me is, is really where I'm at. And I don't know how to do that yet. I, I have no idea, but I think the world needs more communities and I wanna be the one to help make that happen.
0: like <laughs> that. So are you looking at this in like three ways like you're trying to get people to start communities you're trying to get people who already have communities grow them and trying to like influence the way in which communities that already exist operate
1: yeah probably i think there needs to be education like from all aspects especially at the moment there needs to be education about what is exactly a good community yeah basically i think you covered it with those three points
0: and with education, that, that, that does cover all three of those points, right? Because either they don't know what's possible, or they uh, don't know how to get there, or they think that the way that they're currently doing things is all right when it's not. Yeah. So yeah. education is the key to all three of those, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's my next thing is education. Everything that I'm doing now is based around community and education it'll be a big part of my job at Orbit as well, which is a big reason why I'm, I'm actually doing it. So yeah, I'm just like, I said to my, I said to my boss, Patrick, I'm, like, I'm here to, I want to make an impact. And that's my number one goal at the moment is to just make an impact with communities.
0: Well, I think you're well on your way.
1: <laughs> thank you.
0: Well, thank you for, uh... <laughs> meeting with me even though you didn't know who i was or why i was asking (laughs) but
1: stranger on the internet
0: (laughs) i really enjoyed this conversation and i really appreciate you being here so um if you want to give people you know like 60 seconds of like how they can help where they can reach you all that good stuff the time is yours
1: yeah i mean i guess i would just say follow me on twitter that's the best place I, I love Twitter. Almost always on it, but I've got links to to my stuff from Twitter. So and my DMs are open. I'm always happy to chat, just like this as well. Gurus will will tweet and say you should s- say no to most things, but you know, know me. I like to be the opposite of people, and I say yes to most things, as much as I can. I'm a yes person. It stretches me thin, but most of the time, I never I never regret it.
0: Alright, well thank you Rosie. I appreciate it once again. No problem. And uh we should do this again sometime. Yeah, help for it. Alright, sounds good. Well thank you and have a good thank night. You. Thank you. Bye. Bye.